Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to be more inclusive and to lead the change in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, advocate, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Ruchika Tulshian, speaker at Candor LLC. Ruchika is also the author of Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. And we'll be discussing together how we develop an inclusive mindset, build empathy, and center women of color in our individual and organizational work as allies and advocates. So I want to say up front, this episode builds off the conversations we've had with several women of color, Minda Hartz, Wyvon Hutchinson this season, as well as episodes in previous sessions with Megan O'Reilly, Sanja Gittins-Otley, Tito, Frida McAleer, Andrea G. Tatum, Darylise Lyons, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson, Tanya Ladipo, Najiba Saeed, Rachel Williams, Michelle Kim, Vanessa Roanhorse, Daisy Auger, OJ Dominguez, and Tiffany Yu, as well as Ritu Basin. So we've heard from so many powerful women of color sharing their stories about how to create change in the workplace. If you haven't listened to those episodes, please go back and listen to those as well. So let's start at the beginning. Can you please just share a bit about your own story, how you grew up, where you grew up, and how you came to do the work that you do? Thanks so much, Melinda. And I'm just so honored to be in company of such amazing women of color that you just described. I see them as my mentors, as my peers, as women that I have learned so much from personally. I think where my sort of experience is different from many of the women of color whom I've worked with is I grew up in a very small country outside the United States called Singapore. It's a country of less than 6 million people. And when I was growing up, it was not on many people's radars. And one of the most sort of formative experiences of my life is I've always been a racial and ethnic minority in every country that I've lived in. and certainly the one that I grew up in. And so having very early experiences with being the other, being different, had to go the extra mile to explain, you know, why my name is Ruchika, what it means, you know, what's my culture, was both a very formative experience early in my life and sort of a thread line with every experience I've had in my life since, including to this day as an Indian Singaporean immigrant woman to the United States. And so early experiences in my life also that I think were very informative into moving into diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which I did not know or uh, have any plans for, but early experiences that I think really shaped me in growing up in Singapore is it is a very racially diverse country. So it's very hard to live your life, never interacting with people who are different than you, you know, your neighbors, your schools, friends whom you meet and, you know, later on in the workplace, diversity, racial diversity is very much a part of life. Inclusion is another story, but racial diversity for sure is very much part of your life. What was very surprising and I'd say truly challenging for me is moving to the United States as an immigrant about a decade ago 
and realizing that actually diversity isn't the experience of many Americans and especially many white Americans. Research finds, you know, three quarters of white Americans don't have a single friend of color. So for me, that I would say was where the early experience of just being around diversity in some ways really taking it for granted that of course I'm going to have friends and coworkers and people around me who are of all different sort of backgrounds and then moving to the United States and seeing that actually, no, that's not the experience for many people. And that I would say has given me sort of fuel and fire in my belly to make change. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And so my next question is kind of what led you to writing this book? You kind of started in on that. If you could just share a little bit there. Yeah. And actually, again, my background is actually in my professional experiences as a business journalist. So I covered companies and markets around the world, a really exciting also in many ways gave me pause to think at that time, you know, much shorter pauses than where I'm at right now. But at that time, short pauses, like, hmm, I wonder why I'm not covering the stories of women. Why am I not covering the stories of leaders who are people of color? I remember having to go the extra mile to really discuss with my editors why, you know, the story about a woman of color leader mattered and why it would matter to the audience, which you know, now with all the knowledge I have now, obviously that meant why would it matter to our white audience to read about a woman of color doing trailblazing work, which my journalist friends tell me is still quite a challenge today. But I made a transition into the technology industry from journalism. And that was really a very rude wake up call for me of how uh, sexism, racism, all sorts of biases, you know, run large. And at the same time, within an industry that's supposed to be very innovative, it is in many ways, it is very innovative, it is very lucrative for sure. And how I was really in my daily interactions, recognizing that as a woman of color, both my race and gender, but more my race played a big part in how co-workers interpreted who I was their perceptions of me and my competence and my leadership abilities and how I should show up in the workplace. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer uh, to your question, but really recognizing that actually, you know, taking an intersectional approach to creating a more inclusive environment is the way that we can really include more people. Really, I would go as far as saying include all, because when the experiences of women of color in an organization are, they experience exclusion, they, ex they experience bias and discrimination, that often gives you a very, very strong perspective of what inclusion really is like at an organization. So informed by those challenges, I knew that I had to at least put them down in paper. And a lot of my sort of training as a journalist came in handy as I started thinking deeply about how those experiences were shaping my, how other women of color were experiencing the workplace. And so that's what led to writing the book. Mm. Before we dive into some of the key pieces in the book and, and the subject we want to talk about today, can you just share a little bit about what the reader can expect to learn from your book? What is it about? Right. Great question. So Inclusion on Purpose is a book about how to create a more inclusive, equitable workplace environment. It talks about both individual actions that we can take on a day-to-day -day basis to be more inclusive this idea that actually, you know, as many people here will know, inclusion doesn't just happen uh, when you leave it to chance. It really takes intention. It really takes 
being purposeful, meaningful, and knowing that it's not just going to happen, you know, if you just leave, left to your own devices. And it also centers the experience of women of color who, as we look into intersectional theory, we know experience both race and gender marginalization. And by centering the experiences of women of color, that again gives us so much of insight into how to be more inclusive, how to create a workplace of belonging for all. So you have, as you say, really focused on intersectionality, particularly for women of color, and also centering anti-racism and in our DNI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So what does it look like to center anti-racism in the work? So important to center anti-racism. And I really think of that as the fulcrum from where everything else, it's really where we need to focus our energies to again, create meaningful change. For folks listening and watching, we know that a lot of corporate DNI today where we're at has focused on elevating white women, white women with generally with educational and socioeconomic privilege. And that's why we find that a lot of corporate diversity and inclusion efforts still have a long way to go to include everyone. And a big part of that is the refusal or the hesitation or you know, fill in the blank here, but essentially the inability to engage meaningfully with anti-racism work and think about centering anti-racism in policies. And so, and in policies and in, and in all sorts of actions, actually, not just interventions at an organizational level, but even individuals. And so I think there's a huge opportunity here to center. There's a huge need, there's a huge opportunity and urgency to center anti-racism in both corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, as well as individual efforts to be a more inclusive human being, a manager, a leader in all facets of our lives. Can you talk about maybe what are some of the steps to do that on an individual level? One of the the statistic that I shared about from PRRI research, which finds, you know, three quarters of white people don't have a single friend of color, also finds that the average white American social network is 91% white. And the first time that for the average white American that they would actually interact with someone who's from a different racial background than them is actually in the workplace. So one of the reasons why I want to center and focus on the workplace, and I and I really admire Change Catalyst for doing this, is because we know that for a lot of people, that might actually be the first time they've interacted with someone who speaks a different language or has an unfamiliar name or meaningfully had any interactions with someone who's different. So when we think about creating and taking an anti-racist lens from a from an individual level this often means taking a good look around who is your social network today who are the people that you interact with who are the people who you talk with who are the people you consider your friends who do you invite to dinner back in the pre-pandemic days or maybe meet now outdoors for a socially distant walk or coffee and uh, the majority of the time it's going to be people who look like you who've had similar backgrounds and similar experiences as you. So one of the most meaningful and I think transformative ways to take an anti-racist approach to your day-to-day life and your individual lives is to cultivate diversity and cultivate a diversity of viewpoints of backgrounds of, of races, certainly ethnicities, immigrant stories, et cetera. Like just truly think deeply about who's missing, which perspectives are missing in your life today, And how can you 
not transactionally, but relationally, which is something my friend Aiko Bithia says, you know, diversity and inclusion isn't transactional, it's relational. How can you cultivate meaningful diversity, right? That could be doing an audit of what are the restaurants that you visit or what are the coffee shops that you frequent, who owns them, you know, what's the stories behind them. Now that, you know, book season is upon me with my book release around the corner, really doing a deep dive into what are women of color owned bookstores. And I've been curating a list and I'll be setting those out soon, but really thinking about how do we intentionally and meaningfully choose diversity in our lives. I mean, we'd be so much richer for it. I have more tips. I'll just say one more so that we can continue on. The other one for me, which has been transformative is consuming media books, podcasts, stories, especially as, as well as actual articles and, you know, my news coming from a diversity of sources, right? And that means created by people of color, communities of color, for communities of color. And for me to get a deeper look into, you know, not just defaulting to largely, we know certainly again, in my journalist lens always reminds me, the media is very much run by and owned by a white majority. And so really seeking stories, community newspapers, community newsletters, community websites and blogs to get my news rather than, again, defaulting to the large circulation media outlets. What you said is important, really important, and I'm just going to call it out, is by and for communities of color. That I mean, I do think that is key because if you're consuming things only created for you, you're still not getting that experience, that expansion of your understanding. That's yeah, right. And deepening of empathy. So in my work with leaders, I work with them to develop an inclusive mindset. So when I saw you have a whole chapter on that, I was really excited because I also build on Carol Dweck's growth mindset in that work. Let's start by defining it. What is an inclusion mindset to you? Yeah, again, for me, an inclusion mindset, and I'm so glad, Melinda, that we are in solidarity on this. And I think this work cannot be done in a silo. So I love that there are different people approaching it with similar sorts of ideas. And and so what I love about Carol Dweck's work and you know what I even talk about in the book is this idea that we may come preconditioned with certain uh, notions. We know society, unfortunately, is racist and many of us have been conditioned. I can speak for myself. We have been conditioned with racist ideas and stereotypes and notions and biases of what people are capable of, unfortunately, based on their skin color. And what where I think that you know the growth mindset idea is very powerful is knowing that you can overcome that, that you can change that. It takes intentional action, but you can overcome those stereotypes and those ideas and those biases, those racist ideas, but it takes intention. And that's what an inclusion mindset is. It's understanding that you might be preconditioned with, you know, a more, an example, which I find people are more, find more palatable is how we're all conditioned with the gender schema and the gender norms. You know, I have a five-year-old, it's very clear. I have a five-year-old boy. So uh, a cis white boy, a cis brown boy. So what people are very clear about is, hey, these colors are okay for this boy and these colors pink for example like my shirt are is not okay for this boy to wear and to to take on 
And so for me, as a, as a mother, as, as someone who comes in, you know, trying to challenge the gender schema, that means taking intentional action, having a growth mindset, because I certainly was conditioned with these ideas as well about what do cis boys and cis girls, what do they wear, what colors are appropriate and what are not. And so going the extra mile, understanding that you can change that, you have an opportunity to grow from that. You don't have to be fixed with the mindset that you were conditioned with or that you saw growing up or even around you in society. And I think that's very key when it comes to inclusion, because a lot of the earlier defensiveness, in fact, even till today, but a lot of the defensiveness I heard from leaders was, well, I just grew up this way. In my day, we didn't have to worry about diversity. We didn't have to think about inclusion. So it's just, you know, I'm a product of my times. And the inclusion mindset says, absolutely not. You may be, that may be factual, that you grew up with certain ideas, but you can grow from that. You can develop empathy. You can learn from experiences different than yours, but you have to seek them out. Kind of like the growth mindset, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So how do you talk specifically about leaders here? How do you develop that as a leader? How do you develop that inclusion mindset? I actually call it the inclusive mindset. So right. it's so similar. Yeah. And yes. <laughs> so if I, if I slip up, that's what it is. is that no, that's totally mine. <laughs> that's totally mine. And, and um, that's totally fine. And, yeah. and both sort of, you know, interpretations absolutely are valid. Right. Yeah. And we know that it takes work to develop an inclusive mindset for sure. An inclusion mindset. I have several uh, ways that I recommend in my book. The one that I think that I really look to is making sure that we don't get defensive. I think defensiveness and this, again, the way I think, I think there's, you know, there are a lot of different threads that I like to pull, but I think in an individualistic and a very, in a hyper-capitalist society, like the one that we operate in, what we often find is um, there's this focus on, I'm always right. I have all the answers. If I said something that upset someone else that, or it was offensive or it was racist, it's not my problem and it's not my fault to fix. My intention matters more. And that defensiveness can often be really, really harmful and can be the biggest blocker to an inclusion mindset. So where I like to focus a lot of my energy, especially for leaders focusing on creating an inclusion mindset, is thinking about why am I defensive in this situation? Is it going to help? I talk about defensiveness, you know, doesn't help. And instead of being defensive, how can we be a more active listener? How can we cultivate empathy for experiences that are different than our own? And I think that's key and central to an inclusion mindset. Yeah, absolutely. When you're defensive like that, there's an intellectual piece of it. And sometimes there's also like a, you can feel it in your body as well. And I think a key piece of this at that first step is noticing, oh, wait a minute, I'm tensing up. My brain is tensing up. My body is tensing up. I'm holding on to something. What am I holding on to? And really investigating that and going deeper. That's so powerful, Melinda, what you just said, because I think we don't talk about how it shows up in our bodies And what you just said is so powerful because it really does. There's obviously a very physiological reaction to defensiveness. There's a reason why we were conditioned to be defensive, right, in situations. But now we need to kind of rise about that back to the growth mindset and inclusion mindset. The other thing I wanted to also say is the flip side for the person who 
is encountering defensiveness in someone else. It takes a lot of risk as a woman of color to speak up, especially in situations where there might be a big power differential. If you want to talk to your boss or you want to talk to your boss's boss, or you want to talk about, talk for me in my, in the work I do, a client and offer feedback like, Hey, this situation happened and it really put me in a, in a tough place. You know, I experienced racism or experienced bias experiencing defensiveness from other people can be very demoralizing as the person who raises, who brings to the fore issues of facing bias and discrimination. And so that defensiveness really doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the person who's delivering that feedback and hopefully offering it from a place of, you know, safety and feeling like they can raise issues and challenges that they face. And it certainly doesn't help the person who is trying to develop an inclusion mindset too. Mm. One of the things that I think is so powerful in your book is the reflection questions. You ask people to do the work, right? And I, I do this in my book too, because it's so important. It's not enough to read the book. You actually have to do the work to change yourself and, and change, hopefully, the, the organization around you as well. So could you just share a couple of questions that leaders should be asking themselves as they work to build an inclusive mindset? Yeah, you know, so important. And, you know, these might be different from the book, but I think checking in again, very constantly, you know, do I have a diversity of perspectives around me, right? When I make decisions, when I'm launching something really big, or it could be something big or small, do I have a diversity of perspectives? And that truly means racial diversity and ethnic diversity and uh, gender diversity is, is at the core for me. That intersection of race and gender is really important. So are women of color, are Black women present in the decisions I'm making, in whose perspectives I'm seeking, in who's being represented in the audience that I'm trying to engage with? I think leaders need to think about the importance of women of color and, and reflect upon how much women of color are present and are, are a very powerful, but unfortunately overlooked and underutilized audience and resource. And this is true no matter who you are, right? This can be, you know, I use the example of like where you buy your coffee from or where you go, you take your meals from or, or whatever it is where you order takeout from. It's also uh, present in every other facet of our lives as well, right? Like when I'm thinking of redesigning my website, like who do I call, right? Who do I ask referrals from, you know, hey, do you know a good website designer, right? Like who do I ask referrals from? Whom do I trust? So there's a lot of these reflections that we need to do, I would say, in our everyday lives, in every situation. And I want to center the fact that for women of color, for people of color, but specifically women of color, these calculations happen on the daily, right? And they're calculations like, I can afford to live in a neighborhood, I'm, I'm seeing from my own experience, I can, you know, I can afford to live in a neighborhood, which everyone says is really good, but it's majority white. And is this the type of life that I want to build? Is this the type of family, you know, home that I want to build? Or, you know, do I make other calculations and say, no, the importance for me is diversity, even and racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity. And that might mean making choices into and being meaningful about investing in under invested and under-resourced areas, because that's what's important to me. Mm -hmm. As a product of somebody who grew up 
in very diverse neighborhoods, going to very diverse schools and public schools, I can say that I thought it was normal. <laughs> and it wasn't so much later that I realized it was not. And it makes such a difference in uh, building empathy within your children and, and understanding and and so much more. I mean, my worldview is, was completely sculpted by our childhood is sculpts our worldview. It is so important. So uh, I love that. So empathy, but you have a bit chapter focused on empathy as well. It's near and dear to my heart. Um, allyship is empathy in action. And so can you talk about how leaders can develop empathy? What are some practical steps that people can take? I think there are so many, you know, research-backed ways, and I talk about the research from Berkeley's Greater Good Center for Science, and I just think where we need to focus this our energy on empathy is recognizing how transformative it's going to be for our lives, and it really will be. And and Melinda, your fantastic and very important body of work is extremely pertinent to this. The reality that without empathy, without really taking action from the empathy that we develop, without taking responsibility for the issues that we see around us, we aren't going to make change, right? So I think empathy is, you know, the importance of empathy can't be overstated. The two big things that I'd like to highlight, one is I'd say harder to do, but the biggest change. And then the second is, or maybe I'll start with the second. The second is more practical and that's reading fiction. So one of the steps from Berkeley uh, when it comes to developing empathy, truly like a research back way to develop empathy and one that I found very powerful in my own life as a young child reading fiction from really a diversity of authors writing about their own communities, their own voices, not necessarily people with privilege and power writing about communities and interpreting communities of color and marginalized communities with their own lens, but really when authors write about this is what it's like to be a person of color. This is what it's like to have characters with all sorts of you know various tensions and challenges. And when you read fiction, we truly, the way that our brain is wired, we truly are able to take on and have greater empathy from people who are different than us if we seek out a diversity of voices in the fiction that we read. So that's a very easy, like quote unquote, easy way. And sometimes that actually means going against the bestseller list. That means seeking out perspectives from smaller presses, you know, not the large presses and there's, you know, I can go on and on about, about the lack of access and equity in the publishing industry. But um, one of the most transformative books that I read and I recommended in my own book is Homegoing by Yajiasi on how the intergenerational effects of slavery and, and trauma impacts the characters in her book for generations, right? And how, how that has such a material impact. And I remember reading the book and being so moved by it. I think for me, it had even more meaning because again, I grew up outside the United States. So my interactions with Black American people was very cursory, was almost non-existent until I was an adult. And so what was very meaningful for me is that the empathy that I had built over the years of reading fiction from a variety of Black American authors really helped me put a lot of situations in perspective. And I'm very, very fortunate that um, 
you know, that since I've lived in the United States for the last decade, I've really had a true racial diversity of friends. I have, you know, many friends who do represent the Black American community. But what I found is that early perspective of being able to read fiction from authors who could really describe what it felt like. What is that real experience? And again, there's something about fiction apparently, which makes it less defensive or makes you less defensive than if you read, you know, a memoir where again, there could be a little bit of like both sightings, which is both sighting, which I have, I really try not to do, but I've seen it a lot in the media, you know, this sort of like, oh, you, that was your experience. That's, but that's not factual. Fiction gives us a lot more creativity and the ability sort of to really develop that empathy. So that's a little more sort of tactical. But before you go on, I just want to say, I, I, you know, it's some, not something that I've really thought about, like how how have I been sculpted by by reading? But I have indeed quite a bit. And, and it was fiction. And also, I just want to say poetry. And when I was young, my grandmother lived in Albuquerque, and there was this amazing bookstore um, across the street from the University of New Mexico, and it had a huge section of um, both fiction and nonfiction and also poetry of Native Americans or Indigenous people. And I just dove into that every time we went over the summer, I would grab a few a few books and take it home with me. And I learned so much. I mean, there's so much and there can be so much history and present in one poem that can also take you there and kind of, it can be a very different world and, um, and prod you to explore deeper. Absolutely, Melinda. And you know, the the other part of this is the more work we do in our private spaces, especially around this, I think it can be very powerful when we then go out into the world and in our interactions with people who are different than us, and especially in the workplace. One of the very important things I found from reading fiction and getting empathy and, and sort of developing more empathy, I would say, is it would safeguard me from then having to ask my coworkers of color from different backgrounds, like, hey, you know, hey, can you explain to me why we shouldn't be saying this thing or like why I shouldn't be doing that thing? You know, it already gave me empathy. I remember reading about characters, you know, and thinking more of African-American characters who talked about or who, who expressed sort of stressful situations with having their hair touched, for example, and reading that in fiction and reading that in books, then I don't think it's okay to touch anyone's hair for the record, but it kind of it kind of gave me that context again, especially as someone who grew up outside this country. And so I think it's it should be required reading for everyone to look for fiction that's again from a diversity of authors. The second part that I was going to say, which is again takes harder work is less sort of like tactical in that moment. Like, oh, this, here's this easy solution. Just go get a book from someone who's different than you and read it. It is really, you know, active listening, listening to hear, not listening to respond and really stopping and processing and thinking. Sometimes I think in our rush to action and in our rush to, and, you know, again, research backs this up, but in our rush to not feel uncomfortable, right back to the inclusion and growth mindset in our rush to, oh, I I feel uncomfortable that someone has brought up a situation where I behaved in a way that I'm, 
I feel shame. And so rather than sitting with that and being and actively listening, every time they say something, I'm already formulating my response on to challenge them or be defensive. And so active listening is really one of those ways that I think we can develop empathy, a research backed way as Berkeley recommends as well. And so I think we have a lot of work to be done and yet the opportunity again could be transformational and that empathy could be so powerful and in relationships, you know, outside the workplace as well, with our family, with our friends, with people who we love as well, having greater empathy can be so transformational. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. 1000% <laughs> agree. So I want to ask you this one other uh, question, which is just, what, is there anything else that you really want people to know? And I do have a couple of questions, but we do have a little bit of time. So if there's anything else that is really on your mind that, that you want to say a bit about, I want to say that I don't, you know, this work really requires all of us to, to take responsibility, to be accountable. I love that Melinda, you and I are building on this together. I'm so proud and excited that there are a cacophony of voices, you know, symphony of voices, I would say, even Mm -hmm. doing this work. And so sometimes in a very individualistic culture, like the one I see here in the United States, there's a lot of focus on, oh, I'm, I should be the one who stands out, or it's my voice that matters the most, or my perspective has to be the one that like, changes everyone's minds. And for me, I really see my work as building upon foundations that were laid for me, you know, decades, even centuries ago. I think of the amazing work done by Stella Uncomo and Ella Bell Smith really focused on, uh, you know, like 30 plus years ago, writing about the experience, the different experiences of black women and white women in the workplace, not getting at that time the recognition that they deserved. And now all these years later, they have their their book has been re-released by Harvard Business Press. And I just think we need to do this work together, right? There has to be solidarity. There has to be, and, and in many ways, I think in other areas of leadership and management and even, you know, development, like self-development, there's been people building upon each other, but you you may not feel like you need to do it in community. Of course, the work is done, you know, together, but you don't feel like you need to really call out other people, call out in a positive way, call in people and say, you know, I'm so glad I'm building on your work here. But I think in for diversity, equity, and inclusion work to be transformational, we do have to do that. We do have to pay homage to, we do have to pass the ball. We do have to pass the mic in a way that I think can again also change the paradigms around what we think a leader is, right? A leader doesn't have to be this lone wolf, like I have all the answers, I did everything, but really a community and a tribe of people lifting each other up. I love that. Agreed so much. So Ruchika, where can people learn more about your work? Well, the probably the best way right now, all efforts are t- to the book, as you can see this, or you might be able to hear from my voice that I'm a little, you know, I don't like to promote myself, but um, yes, the, we, we, we've discussed that on, on social media together. Yes, it's tough. Have. It's tough. It's really <laughs> tough. Um, so thank you for this opportunity, Melinda. But my website is basically inclusiononpurpose.co. Uh, will give you more information about my book. I do have a newsletter mailing list called Inclusion is Leadership. And again, I deeply believe that inclusion is a leadership trait and we all have the opportunity to cultivate and practice it. 
That's probably the best way. I'm also very, very proud. I co-authored an article called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome with Jody Ann Bury, which was, you know, Harvard Business Review's top three articles of 2021. So please do check that out and let me know your feedback on social media. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. And my name is spelled R-T-U-L-S-H-Y-A-N um, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, actually. So you should be able to find me. Awesome. Uh, and I always end by asking listeners and watchers to take one action. So what action would you like people to take after listening to this conversation? Oh, that's so hard. One action. <laughs> Here's one sort of building upon what we did and talked about. Either write down a list of the five people outside your immediate family whom you're closest to and whom you seek sort of advice from and mentorship from, or audit the five people who you're most sort of in touch with on social media and observe what are their backgrounds, what are their racial, ethnic, gender, identity, you know, any other demographic data that you have as much sort of intersectionality as you possibly can get. And it's really important to do that because what many people don't realize is we do operate in an echo chamber, right? Many of us do only interact with people who look like us both online and offline. And when there's a chance to make change, when we audit that, when we take a look at that, when we're really intentional about it, that's when we can say, you know, either, hey, we're doing great and I'm so glad and we're going to do more of this, or actually, you know, there's room for improvement. Here's what we're going to do. Awesome. And I want to offer a second action you can take is to go check out Ruchika's new book, Inclusion on Purpose. And she also has another book, The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace. So go check out both of those. And one final ask would be, because now you've heard that Ruchika has a hard time amplifying her own voice and, and really self-promotion is, is, it can be hard. And it's especially hard when people have marginalized identities, right? It, it is because yes. it is the history of people telling you you're not good enough. And so then you have to push through that in order to do this. And so please amplify her, amplify her work, share it on social media. If you're active on social media, tell people about her book, um, do, do the work as an ally to amplify. Thank you so much. Melinda, thank you so much. Thank you for showing allyship in action. That's very powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, appreciate you so much and all of the work that you do. And um, thank you for the conversation. Thank you. To learn more about this episode's topic, visit ally.cc. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Please share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media, because we'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. Appreciate you listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.